Let me introduce you a uh, well-known, our regular guest speaker. It's, it's not the right term to describe, but anyway, uh, I, I just learned the one. Relief pitcher, yes, for pulpit supply. So, uh, uh, we have, uh, we, this is a very unique year for Forest. Six of our high school grad graduates are going to college, and then three of them, uh, born in pastor's family. God have mercy on them. And so this, uh, I ask that this, each fathers to uh, share the last message they want their child to hear before they move on to college. Okay, so today Han Chung is uh, preaching because uh, Noah, this is the last Sunday of Noah. And uh, after today, Make sure that during the fellowship, say goodbye, because he's going to uh, uh, Chicago. He's going to Wheaton College. Noah, would you stand? So let's give him a hand. Yeah. All right. And next Sunday, I'm going to preach because my youngest daughter, Bethel, is going to uh, Austin, UT. And then following Sunday, uh, uh, Voltaire is going to preach because Sherris is going to college, uh, University of Houston the following. So we have a... Uh, Three Father series, so be ready, okay? It was uh, wonderful. You've been a great gift to our whole family, and uh, you're a gift that keeps on giving. So thank you for, because of you, I have an opportunity to share the Word of God today. And uh, Noah is actually, it's the second time, he was part of the easy service. He took very extensive notes. I think he should, I mean, he, he's probably better than me. He, he should have preached today. <laughs> so thank you, son. I love you. Uh, okay. All right, is, the, uh, is that on? Oh, oh okay. It's the monitor is not on. Okay, it's all right. Um, so, uh, yeah, let me just begin. Um, you know, I, I remember as a, as a father, I think Noah was maybe two years old or something. I remember when Noah came in, before he was born, I almost got into a state of panic because I realized I don't know how to be a good father. And uh, I remember, like, you know, so I, I turned to the Bible, and, and believe me, there aren't that many good examples of fatherhood either. Um, but uh, the Lord uh, so provided that, that one day I had a meeting with another pastor. And uh, at the, you know, when we had this meeting, he came in. And uh, rather than you know, talking about the business at hand, he kept talking about the meeting that he had previously to my meeting with me. I was a bit annoyed in the beginning, but it turned out to be one of the greatest blessings of my life. He talked about uh, this uh, in, in the previous meeting. A oh, is this okay? A Chilean pastor that his church supports. And uh, he said... The, the Chilean pastor was in the United States because a few months before that, um, he discovered that uh, you know, his, son, one of, his older son had all kinds of strange medical conditions. And when he brought him over to, to the United States for extensive medical checkup, they finally realized that, that he has a very rare genetic disorder. And the doctors gave him about, about six, four months to live. As if that weren't tough enough, because it was a DNA disorder, genetic disorder, they tested his, uh, their other children and it turned out another one of his child had the same condition. So at that point, uh, Bill was his name. He kind of paused and, and, and so he said, he asked the pastor, so what did you do? And the pastor's reply was this. He said, I prepared them for eternal life. That stuck with me for a long time. Why? Because like a lot of us that grew up you know, in this world, we think that, that the job of a parent is to prepare our children to a certain point. In the previous generation, it was like high school, right? When few people uh, you know, went beyond high school, it was the high school was a big event. A after high school, you're, you know, you're gone. So when, you, when they leave for college, you're an empty nester, and you, your job is done. Nowadays, you Gen Z guys, it's extended a little bit further, right? <laughs> Until you get your first job, or you can buy your first place. So we extend it a little further. But may I suggest to you, that is not what the Bible shows us. That we, as parents, first of all, must extend our view into preparing our children, not for a job or college or career or even marriage, but towards eternity. And I know there are a lot of you guys here, you know, you're single and you're thinking, okay, I'm gonna check out of the service. No, 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 no. What I discover, as you can imagine, is that the best thing that I, as a father, can do in preparing my child for life eternal is for me to be prepared for the life eternal. So I pray that uh, as we go through this uh, passage, uh, a couple of chapters in the book of Revelation together, that you listen to the word of God with this question, how do I reach the end for which I was created? And I'm gonna just 
give you the answer right away. Because it's pretty simple. And I was shocked when I actually, when I started reading through the book of Revelations. I went into the study of Revelations thinking that the book of Revelations is about events. It shows me the events leading up to the final coming of God. And to the, the great judgment and Armageddon and so forth. It does contain that, but a lot of it is in, in, in a very difficult apocalyptic imagery that is hard to really fathom what the sequence and what the, exactly it's talking about. You know, which country is Magog and who's 666. That's not the major point of Revelations. The Revelation, book of Revelation show us the, the end for which God created us, the purpose for what God, God created us. And, and that key word is repeated 24 times in the Bible, in the book of Revelations. And, and the word is, anybody can guess? It's worship. Worship. 24 times. Not a mistake, it's 24 times. And what's really interesting is, as you, as you know, those who read the book of Revelations, it describes all the worship that is happening in the spiritual realms all around us. Even now, the angels and the seraphim and the 24 elders are, are worshiping God and, and, and the Lamb who was slain. What to me was really surprising which led to the essential message of this book was the fact that out of the 24 times, exactly half, 12 times, referred to the worship of the true God. And the other 12 times, worship of false gods. Book of Revelation is designed, I thought, to encourage people who are suffering. Actually, I found out in the historical context, Revelation was not written when there was severe persecution. And if you read Book of Revelation carefully, you realize that. Instead, Revelations was written when the, when the lure of false worship and the lure of the world was very strong. And, and it was just at the beginning of persecution. So I believe it really uh, um, fits our context. Why? Because I believe that perhaps even more than Babylon or ancient Rome, we live in a country and in a place where we are surrounded by idols of everything you can imagine. And what is the threat to our worship is not persecution as it is in China or Iran or Saudi Arabia. It is actually the false worship. Let me just pray really quickly before we launch into this. Heavenly Father, I tremble again once before you, God. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open up our eyes to see you and to hear this essential message that would cause us to enjoy wonderful biblical worship before you that prepares us for life eternal of worship in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll read from the first part of Revelations. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Revelations 21, 1 through 9. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of, crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the, of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give, him, give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship, false worship, at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm, I'm trying to organize these uh, two chapters around some simple kind of divisions. First of all, I'd like us to, to look at what is not there. Okay? First thing is, it says actually, to me this was actually pretty shocking. I didn't realize this until I started studying this a few weeks ago. First heaven and first earth have passed away. As you guys know, Genesis begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And what that means is not just heaven and earth, like two distinct places. It means everything in this universe. And what it says here is that the first heaven and the first earth, meaning this universe, passed away, gone. No more. Every atom, every energy, gone. The only thing that remains, obviously, are the souls of people. And, 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 and God and his angels. Now, here's the second thing. No light of sun or lamp. Again, Genesis 1-3, uh, on the first day, God said, let there be light. Surprisingly, no more light. And, there, and, and then after the end of the first day, they said there was night. No night either here. And no sea. And no death. Now, where does death enter? Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve uh, disobey God's one command. You will surely die. Death enters. And then as a judgment, God pursues him and he curses the ground and curses the serpent. No curse, no death, he says. And I love this. No mourning, crying, or pain. All the mourning, crying, and pain that proceeds out of the brokenness of the fall. No more. And again, in, it iterates in, in summary, old order of things have passed away. The entire universe, not just the physical, but everything that is what is known, gone. What is uh, 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 the angels and the, what is John telling us? He's basically retelling the, the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But what he's doing is that he's showing that at the end, in the last two chapters, there's a great reversal of all the effects of the fall. By the way, you know, I, I study physics in college, and I love symmetry. You guys know who study physics or, chemistry, uh, physics or uh, engineering, universe and the, and the most basic elements of, 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 uh, of, of physical laws is all about symmetry. And you see this in God's word as well. This is perfect symmetry, the reversal of the fall. And furthermore, it's not just the reversal of the fall, it's the reversal of the conditions that led to fall. I didn't have a chance to read this, but what we read in chapter 20 is that Satan, who's, who deceived uh, Adam and Eve, is, 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 and his uh, fallen angels are thrown into the lake of fire. And that is a separate universe. It's not in this new universe. And furthermore, the constitutional spiritual weakness that made Adam and Eve succumb to Satan is also no more because of the indwelling perfect dwelling of the Holy Spirit in, in, the, in, in, in the redeemed. No worry about the fall 2.0. This is it, guys. So what is there then? Again, the new universe, new earth, new heaven. And as Pastor Paul likes to point out, the word new here is kainos. It's, it's, not, it's not neos, which is a new in time. It's something completely different. It's a different kind of a universe. I can't even imagine what it will be like. And furthermore, New Jerusalem is the prominent feature. It's not even New Earth, it's New Jerusalem. And the word again is new. It doesn't mean kind of like the old Jerusalem. No, we saw last week, and again, Pastor Paul mentioned, this is kind of cool how Pastor God connects these things. We saw the joy of David when he conquered uh, Jerusalem, and he, when he brought the presence of God through the Ark of Covenant into the city, and he worshiped God. 
Could you imagine what New Jerusalem would be like? Which was prepared by God, not man-made or conquered or built up by man. Could you imagine what that would be like? And I love this consolation that will be there. When he says, God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, the first thing that we experience is consolation that we may never fully experience in this life. We will enter into the new world with tears, but they will be wiped away there. And there's this one prominent feature that's there, that's not, that is kind of there in Eden, which is the river of water of life on the banks of which stands a tree of life. And those of you who know the Genesis story well, tree of life was the reason why God kicked Adam and Eve out of Garden of Eden. Because tree of life is what gave human beings immortality. And, and, and if Adam and Eve had been able to stay in the Garden of Eden, they would have continually eat it, and there would have never been freedom from their flesh and from their sin. It was a gracious act that God kicked them out so that he could preserve them from the effects of immortal life so that they could die one day and be born into the new world. And furthermore, it says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I love this word healing. It's actually the Greek word therapy, exact word. And I love this idea because as I grow older, I recognize just how broken this world is, how broken I am. I'm not a rich guy, but I could spend all my money easily on therapy. Just all the effects of my own choices and effect of the sin that has been, occurred, that has been done to my life, even since I was, I was born. And yes, we do experience healing. And we do experience consolation. But there's a sense that some of our wounds will never be fully healed. And some of our tears will never stop flowing until we reach New Jerusalem. I, I just wanted to, it's a side point, but I want us to park there a little bit because of our expectations, what it means to be new in Christ. Part of the grace that God gives us is to live with our brokenness and the brokenness of our spouses, of our children, of our church members. We can hold on to the pain. We can hold on to our brokenness and God will give us enough healing and enough consolation that we won't be overwhelmed. But boy, when we get to the new heaven and new earth, is that going to be a wonderful day? I feel like the first few hundred years we'll just be crying and crying and laughing and rejoicing. That's what is there. But the best thing, and this is the Christian vision of, of heaven that is so beautiful, of, of uh, life eternal. Who is there? It's, it is God who's there. The voice from the throne says, look, God's dwelling place, literally tabernacle, is now among the people, and he will dwell, literally tabernacle, with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, the word tabernacle instantly brings us to mind the book of Exodus. When, God, when Israelites, the first time since, you know, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, began to experience God's presence with them. And, 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 and God wanted to do it with them, but there had to be this elaborate system, this tabernacle, that is consistent of three parts. The first is the outer court. There's only one way, right? First curtain leads you into the outer court where there is an altar of burning incense, to say that the only way that the unholy, unclean sinners like us could have fellowship with this holy, perfect God is through sacrifice. And you know, sacrifice was done there, but those who were called to be priests could go to another place called the holy, of, holy place, which they went into there twice a day, all the priests could, to do service and special worship uh, 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 service there for the Lord. But in this place called the Holy of Holies, which is this square area on the westmost side in which is the Ark of the Covenant which contained the, the mercy seat upon which was a Shekinah glory. The presence of God was so holy that there was a thick, thick curtain and, and the priest, the high priest, I'm sorry, the high, only the high priest could only go there once a year to make sacrifice for himself and his family. And that was it. And even there, he had to burn incense 
lest he see the holiness of God, the glory of God. This holy of holies was the means through which and the various divisions which, is, which Israel could experience God's presence. But notice when it says that, the, that he would tabernacle among them, he's not talking about a tabernacle. There is no tabernacle because the throne of God is in New Jerusalem. Tabernacle or temple, later the temple was a copy of the tabernacle, was God's gracious accommodation, a temporary accommodation, meaning he accommodated to us and dwelt among us by holy God to allow unholy to be near him. Now what's amazing is that in, you guys know in John 1.12, the word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us once again. But that too was just a temporary but what we're talking about here is a permanent dwelling of God. And what that suggests is this, that the, the way that God will tabernacle among us is that the Holy of Holies is the New Jerusalem without any curtain, without a need for any incense, with perfect clarity. Why? Because it says that they, the redeemed, will serve him and they will see him face to face, which no one could do in the Old Testament. And no incense, face to face. And furthermore, just as the, the holy uh, high priest, when he entered in, he had a turban that says, holy to the Lord. Guess what? No turban. The name of God will be on our foreheads, signifying our permanent possession of God and God's possession of us. And we don't need light. We don't need these lamps or light. Why? Because the Lord will give them light. No intermediaries. God is our light. And he will guide us spiritually and physically. And what's more, we will reign forever. What do I mean by this? All this, all this is pointing to is this reality that the new Jerusalem is the holy of holies. And the redeemed are not just priests. As we talk about priesthood of believers, we should change that to say that the redeemed will be the high priesthood of all believers. Because not only once a year or just one priest, all of the redeemed will have this complete access that Jesus Christ paid for when he died on the cross and the, tor and the veil that kept the Holy of Holies from the rest was torn in two. And as you see, again, this, this envelope, this, um, that just as Adam, God uh, uh, created Adam to serve, i.e. tend to the Garden of Eden, the same language is used. We'll be serving as, as Adam was serving in the Garden of Eden. And we'll be reigning forever as God intended in Genesis 1 when he said, when he created man and woman in his image and said, uh, and he gave them dominion and rulership over the world. So what this means is this, that, that we get to take, tend to, and to take care of, not dominate and exploit, but to tend to, take care of, to nurture this universe, this new universe that God creates. I am just blown away by that. I believe that the first thing that we need to do for ourselves and for our children and the people around us God entrusts is to paint this big picture of what the end is all about. You know, this morning I was just doing some research and I quickly read about how right now during the Olympics, how athletes like nowadays, in the last 20, 30 years, uh, every, almost every athlete has a, a psychologist. And what they help them with is to visualize the end. It's a powerful thing, apparently. They've done all kinds of research. There's one, to me, that was kind of interesting because I'm a basketball fan. This, they did a study uh, where they took uh, basketball players and they had them visualize just shooting free throws every day for a month. And they found... 23% improvement just from the power of visualization. Somebody go tell Ben Simmons, right? Inside joke. Okay, somebody got it. Okay, just think about that. Here's where my challenge to myself and to all of us. Do we understand this big picture? And do we visualize this big picture? Is this what feeds us and propels us? Or do we have other pictures that dominate our thinking? Here's my summary, this is my, it's not perfect by any means, but here's my attempt and to verbalize this picture. That eternal life in the new universe is an unending worship of God, 
unending worship of God. And it doesn't mean that we just sing worship songs. No, it means that, that, that this unending worship of God, it springs from our ever-growing. Because as final beings, we'll never get it all in one day. Ever-growing, intimate relationship signified by the name of God on our foreheads and, and the fact that we can see him face-to-face without smoke. With him as his beloved children. And expressed in our ever-increasing discovery of Intending to his creation as his vice regents, to his glory and our joy. You know, God has given me two beautiful children. I'm glad he gave me a male and a female. Noah loves to uh, discover, adventure, figure it out. Hannah loves to tend, to take care of, to nurture, beginning with her teddies and now her imaginary pets, you know. I think there is something for all of us. I think there's something in all of us that we will fully realize the joy of being God's children in this wonderful playground called the new universe. And we got to paint this big picture for ourselves and for for the ones we love. Now, who is there? Very interesting uh, how, uh, how John puts it. He says, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, um, what Jesus says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they'll be my children. It, it says three things. The thirsty, those who are victorious, and then finally they're his children. That's the result, right? Now the, I'm gonna focus on the thirsty part. So who's gonna be there? Who's going to be like the Olympic athlete who visualizes and stands on the podium? Who's going to be the one who will be in New Jerusalem? It's those who are thirsty. What does he mean? Let me just read some of these wonderful verses from the Bible. Jesus, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, Honor and immortality. Glory and honor and immortality are things that are in the very fabric of the new creation, not in this world. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth of God, and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I always tell my kids, ultimately I believe that those who are in heaven are those who want to be there badly who long for the tree of life, who long for the consolation that only God can give, who long to be healed by God more than anything else. Perhaps this is the statement that I love the most, Hebrews 11, describing the whole list of people who walk by faith, because his faith is what gets us in there without cost, right? By faith, Abraham, when, he, when, he, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. He lived in tents, even though he was a rich guy. As did Isaac and Jacob, three generations of multi-billionaires in their time, living in tents, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city without foundations. See, why he didn't build a city? Because he was longing for that consolation healing and the riches of heaven. Whose architect and builder is God. We who are called children of Abraham, this is the path set before us by faith, choosing to live, to make that our destination. How does one become thirsty? Uh, I want to read a little bit from my, my favorite book, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what Tim, uh, Paul, who was like a spiritual father to Timothy, says to him at the end of his life. He says, you, however, know all about, he says, you know me, my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of that. Did you know that when you go back to the book of Acts, Timothy became a believer at the lowest point, most intense uh, persecution for Paul when he was in Lystra, when he was stoned to death and they thought he was dead and they threw him outside of the city? It was at that time 
And when Paul stood up and went back into the city, he, that's when, when, he, when Timothy saw that, that's when he became a believer. So in fact, everyone who wants to be, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, this is again a key not only for children or parents raising children but for every one of us here that the way that we become thirsty and through that one day and have the thirst satisfied in the kingdom of God is through the scriptures, one. Because the scriptures is what makes us wise for salvation. Reading scripture doesn't make you a Christian, but it makes you wise. It tears down the lies, and over time, it makes you wise to choose God and to cry out in faith. This is, I believe, the key not only to parenting, but of our own spiritual journey too. For those of you that have been coming and are still deciding, is this true or not? Don't look at us Christians. Don't look at how nice we are, how hospitable we are. Don't look at how we spend our life, what kind of people we are. That's all important. But more importantly, look to the scriptures, which can make you wise. But there is a second thing. That Paul points. He says, you, however, know all about me. And he says, you know those from whom you learned it. That the community of God is definitely number two. That being around authentic Christian believers who are changed and clinging on to the word of God is one of the surest ways that you yourselves, we ourselves, become wise for salvation. I'm so glad to see people coming into our church week after week. Because I really believe that we have community here that can help you become wise unto salvation because we hold to the word of God, or we try to. So the second thing, here's a key insight, cultivating a spiritual thirst. Not only must we paint a big picture, we must cultivate a spiritual thirst. And so I just try to break it down a little bit. What does it mean? The first thing is there has to be a dissatisfaction with the world and self. As long as the world satisfies us with all of its false riches, we're not, we will never have thirst, spiritual thirst. Our, whatever spiritual thirst that is in us will be all satiated by the things that the world offers. And furthermore, for me, for, for example, I was, by the time I was a junior, I was pretty disgusted with the world. I didn't want to live it. Right, but then I turned. But then I real. I didn't realize at the time. I spent all my life make under the idolatry of myself. If in my mind I read something, I thought something was true. It was true. If in my mind it wasn't true, it wasn't true. When I read the Bible, I picked it apart. This sounds true. I like it. Love your neighbors. That sounds pretty cool. You know. Um, if you want to follow me, deny, uh, take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow me. No, no, no. That doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, uh, there is no name under heaven by, 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 uh, uh, given under by which men must be saved. No, 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 that can't be true, right? I was picking and choosing, and I was a slave to my own limited mind and my own self-pride. Until dissatisfaction with the world and the dissatisfaction with myself led me to suicide. At the very bottom of my life, I was finally ready. And I looked back and I thought, why did I, after I survived my suicide attempt, why did I become a born-again believer? Why? I, I tell you why. Same as Timothy, I too was privileged to grow up with scriptures, even though I didn't believe in it. I was exposed to the word of God. And I did also have close encounters with genuine people of God, starting with my own mother and my own grandmother and others in my life. I look back and there were so keys. Quick aside, parents. Again, house church is great for that. But I, I encourage you to expand. Invite pastors, missionaries. Invite those people in your work or house church that are really pursuing God with the zeal and passion that exceeds yours. Expose your children to them and expose yourself to them. 
You know, one of the things that I encourage people to do is if you want to grow spiritually, look at the people around you that when you meet them, your thirst for God grows. And the people in your life that subtly lead you into other type of satisfactions, avoid those people. Because you may have fun with them, but they're not going to bring you to the final end. And finally, for parents, all of us, Lord have mercy. It is the Spirit who wakens us. It is the Spirit who quickens us. It is the Spirit who, who awakens that thirst. In fact, it is the Spirit who makes us realize that the world is just a fleeting falsehood. May we uh, pray for uh, uh, us, our souls. May we pray for our, our children. May we pray for those that God has put into them, our VIPs. Pray that the Lord would have mercy upon them to remove the scales from their eyes as, Paul had, as it happened to Paul also on the road to Damascus. The second description of the same people is that these are who are victorious. So who are the victorious? Um, it's interesting, the truth of that is realized in, in this very funny section right after this beautiful description at the end. It's a very personal section. See, Book of John actually has a subtle strain of biography in it, right? It, and here's one of them. It says, so there's announcement, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. So you can say, yes, those who are victorious are those who keep the word of the prophecy. How do you do that? Here's where John's autobiography breaks in. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and in spite of them, and when I had heard and seen them, in spite of all these, I fell down to falsely worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. This is astounding, people. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm so thankful. Now, the context, if you go back, angel of worship was a huge thing. It was, a, it was such a competition to Christianity that an entire book called the book of Hebrew was written for that reason. And John himself, after all this great vision and experience, was inevitably led towards false worship. Except this true messenger of God said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of the scroll. So what, is it, what does it mean to be victorious? Is to keep the word of the scroll. And what does it mean? He tells us, worship God. This is actually the second time John fell to first false worship. In 19, he did, he did the same thing again. And listen to the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, response of the angel. Same thing. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, with, with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It is, for it is the spirit of the prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. It's a little bit complicated, but the simple way to do it is look at the middle, worship God. And look at the two phrases surrounding it. What does it mean to worship God? It isn't just singing or dancing. or It isn't just coming to church on Sunday. The essence of worshiping God is to hold on to the testimony of Jesus and to obey. And then the second thing is this, is to bear the testimony about Jesus or the testimony that Jesus gave. This twin aspect of holding on to and holding forth the testimony of Jesus or the word of God is what it means to worship God. You know, the, the third time that we see John actually didn't quite fall, but almost was tempted to worship the false gods was when he was lured by these false gods. Um, in chapter 17, the, the angel says, I'm going to show you Babylon, okay? Babylon was Rome, the greatest uh, empire of that time. And, uh, and, and, and Rome is displayed, shown as this beautiful woman in contrast with chapter 12, uh, Israel, okay? The women, listen to the first part of this. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. Do you realize how alluring this is? How beautiful, how sensual this image is? It's like Satan when he showed uh, the, uh, the fruit to Eve, she said when she saw that it was good for her eyes, good to her eyes. It's a beautiful, alluring image of power and glory and riches of Rome. Now, the flip side is, 
was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. The word prostitute invokes disgust from us. But in reality, prostitutes are extremely seductive. This is why it is known as the oldest profession and why so many, increasingly so, even during this pandemic times, sex work and sex workers are paid so much money. It is an alluring. John, I mean, the, the spirit uses the imagery of the prostitute not as a something disgusting, but as something incredibly alluring to the senses. So when John sees her, when I saw her, he says, I was greatly, NIV says, astonished. I believe King James is correct. Wonder with great admiration. This is the same word that's used of non-believers worshiping the beast, Satan. John was tempted and drawn by the, the power and the allure of this false worship. And then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast. I pray that's us. When we are tempted, I pray that there are people like this angel who helps to awaken us, understand what is going on. So how, what is so, so alluring about these false gods? First of all, is they offer intoxication. What do I mean? It's chemical, wine. I didn't realize opium was wide usage in Roman Empire. And, 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 some, and, and another way that intoxication comes is through violence, especially entertainment violence. What do I mean? You've guys seen the gladiator games, right? Bloodlust is just as strong as other intoxicants. And then there's immoral pleasure, and then obviously the idolatry of materialism. All the riches that Rome had to provide as the empire. You know, I want to focus a little bit on the intoxication part because I believe that the reason why all of us are so drawn to intoxications is because all of us are wounded by the fall. That intoxication is the quickest and sometimes the easiest way for us to deal with living in this fallen world. And it can take chemical forms, it can take um, violent games, those violent videos and people are addicted to on YouTube, or just mindless entertainment. You know, COVID times, we know that about 370,000 people died last year. But you know, it's interesting, this article that came out recently from the New York Times, it's huge, it's historic, it's unspoken of. It's not talking about COVID, it's talking about drug overdose. You see the spike at the end that last year that 93,000 people died. That's almost a third or quarter of the people who died of COVID. And what breaks my heart is that so many of the people who are dying of drug overdose are young people. You know, 96,000, right? 95,000 uh, last year died from alcohol-related causes. 14.5 million alcohol use disorder. And these are people you can't read, it says 12 and up. This is the state of the world today. And I don't have to go to the state of the world. I look into my own soul, especially during the COVID times. How, whether it's a stock market or pornography or other things, even drinking, became much more alluring. Because there's part of us that long to be healed. But it, it's not the desire to be healed. It's where we get it from. And Satan uses that precise desire that we have, a holy desire, if you will, to entrap us and enslave us and eventually kill us. Let me, uh, as, I, as I said, worshiping God, the essence of worshiping God is not only to resist these false lures, but to hold on to and hold forth the word of God. Um, and you know, we saw John in the beginning do that, right? He was on the uh, Patmos because of the word of God. He was doing that. But there's an interesting thing that happens here, that twice, once at the beginning and at the end, he's told to write the visions down. Write, therefore. Write this down, for these words are true. Why? This is an inclusio, right? Why? Because writing down, see, he had a private experience. It gave him great insight, even warned him of false worship. 
But to be a Christian is not just to have private worship. To be a Christian is to care for the world. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he had to write it down because his brothers and sisters in the seven churches across from the island where he was at were going through the same temptations and lures and had in fact started compromising and worshiping at the feet of the false idols of Roman Empire and indulging intoxication and immorality and, and, and the false riches of the world. So he says to write it down, write it down, write it down. And do you realize that when he wrote it down, what a tremendous price he had to pay? I mean, he was exiled because of the word of God. Now he's writing it down. And he put his name, I, John. I, John, at Patmos. He stuck his neck out. He identified himself to the authorities. And anybody in the first century who read this book had no doubt that the great whore, the great power against God is Rome. He fearlessly did it because he believed in the word of God and the love of the people, his brethren. Notice that earlier, who is not there, those, the, the two categories in the beginning are cowardly and unfaithful. Those are not non-Christians. Those are Christians or those who are in the Christian church who got cut off in their journey of faith because of fear and because of compromise. How was he able to do this? How did he keep on worshiping? How was he able to do this? Hold, hold on and hold forth, even at the great cost? May I suggest you that the key was that he was worshiping God, right? The thing that drives us is the thing that also sustains us. So it says... It says, uh, uh, I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. We kind of gloss over it because everybody knows what Lord's day is. But do you realize how revolutionary this is? The word Lord's here is kuriake. It's actually used only twice in the entire Bible. And it was the first time that Sunday, the day of worship is called the Lord's day. Before that, in the other references in the New Testament, it's just called the first day of the week. First time, the, uh, the word kuriake is for the day of Lord, uh, the first day of the week. Second, the only time, the other time this is used is in the description of the Lord's Supper, right? What we call also communion. It's a special word, meaning that this isn't just ordinary supper like anything else. This is something that is specially set apart, dedicated, special for the Lord in remembrance of God, in remembrance of Jesus Christ specifically, so that helps us understand what Lord's Day is. It's the same concept. It's not just another day. It's not just even another day to meet with other Christians. It's a day that is specially set apart and dedicated and holy to the Lord. You know, briefly, to, to college kids or those who are in, in new cities, I believe that the most important decision whenever you, especially when you go to college or whenever you're new to move area, is what you do on Sundays and where you go on Sundays, and whether you decide that the Sunday is just another day or the Lord's day. I'm not talking about like legalistically keeping Sunday. I'm talking about setting your heart in pursuit of God and recognizing your need to keep your thirst alive and to satiate your thirst. You guys know I love Rosaria Butterfield. Here's what she says. I became convinced that the worship of the Lord was the most important thing we can do. Listen to me, college kids. Listen to me, son. I know you've heard me say many times. The most decision that you will make when you go to college is not your major, not your roommate, not which classes to take, not where you're going to study, not who you're going to date, for sure. The most important decision is on your own, apart from mom and dad, what are you going to do on Sunday? And where are you going to go? What kind of a church are you going to go? Are you going to go to a church where all your friends go that has great programs and great music? Or are you going to the church that holds on to the word of God and holds forth the word of God? It just thrills my heart. I see so many of you guys from New Life. Just curious, how, raise your hand if you're from New Life. Yeah, one, two, three, four, yeah, five, six. Cool. You guys have that opportunity. I, I really encourage you to talk to our seniors about whether it was intentional or by God's grace, you ended up in a new life. And the fact that you're still here worshiping God is an indication that you made a great choice or God made a great choice and led you to a new life because you're still walking with the Lord. Notice I did not say that it's the only thing that we do. Obviously not. You know, only thing you're not gonna, uh, but we worship 
But worship is the launching pad for life. You see, the launching pad for your college rest of the week is going to be your decision of what and how you will spend that day. Worship is our rehearsal for how to live today, every day, how to glorify God in heaven. It is not merely a Sunday morning exercise meant to make us feel good. Don't go because it feels good. Don't go because people look like you. Don't because they have good food. Don't go because they have interesting people that you like to get to know. Go because of the word of God. Let me just review. So what are some things we can do for ourselves and our loved ones? Painting the big picture, cultivating a spiritual thirst, prioritizing worship of God, recognize and resist false worship. And the way we recognize false worship is the word of God, which points us to true worship. Don't leave it to your limited judgment to figure out what is true and false. Look at the word of God and read it slowly, carefully, and honestly. Experience sacrificial worship. Allow yourself to what it means to sacrifice something, to cost you something. If you have to drive an hour on Sunday, if you have to take some time apart from your final exams so that you could nurture yourself and be part of a Christian community, do so. Let it be costly. Make sure that your life is grounded in the word of God. Everything else would be like tossing. Just, you're just taking a chance. Hold on to the word of God. Some of you may recognize what HODL is, right? I'm curious. Anybody know what that is? H-O-D-L? We've got some holy people here. Well, we've got one. I knew Danny knew it. This is the people for people who worship the false god of Bitcoin. HODL means holding on for dear life. We need to hold on to the word of God like we hold on to Bitcoin. I know this because I, I'm an addict too, a little bit, you know. And finally, enjoying the worship, God, worship of God in spirit and in truth. And again, what gives us the joy in worship of God is the experience of the word of God and the spirit of God and the truth of God. And finally, paying the price for holding forth the word of God. Even as college kids, I pray that you'll have an opportunity to pay that you may continue to hold forth the word of God to those who are around you who are thirsty and they don't even realize that they're thirsty. I want to end here as we always do for house church. I want to read this quote from John Piper. He applied it to mission in general for house and for churches in general. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. I know you know this already, but let me just put this in our context. Evangelism, fellowship, house church exists. Evangelism and fellowship exist not as the ultimate goal of our house churches. Worship is. Worship is. Um, Evangelism and fellowship and, and, and everything that we do in house churches exists because worship doesn't in the life of the VIPs. As, as, as much as we pray and, 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 and open up our homes and sacrifice our time and resources to bring VIPs into our house, I pray that we will continue to cultivate this true biblical worship that is focused and grounded on the word of God and, and holding forth the word of God even against the lures of the, false, of the world and even maybe one day against persecution because that is precisely what the VIPs need. In their lives. And that is what will prepare them and propel them into the end, the New Jerusalem. Let's pray.